You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all your sales and rental equipment needs fulfilled at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Notre Dame great, All-American, and recipient of one of the most famous passes in the history of Notre Dame football. And we'll talk about the snowball before our time is up. Mr. Reggie Brooks. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor. Uh, as someone as we were talking before we started recording uh, as a Catholic kid from Indiana, I remember uh, my father rooting like crazy for Notre Dame. And I remember games when I was a kid, but it was really your era in the era of slightly a few years ahead of you when Notre Dame came back that reignited uh, what Notre Dame football meant, not only to the state, but also to people around the country. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to you. I'm almost giddy, I would have to say. And uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, as I was reading through your biography and watching clips on YouTube and various things is I was struck that you went to Notre Dame you're from Oklahoma. That's not a bad football school, not a bad football state. How did you matriculate to South Bend, Indiana? And if you want to address this as well, how did your older brother, Tony, matriculate to Notre Dame, Indiana? Well, it really started with him and my dad. So, you know, my brother was Gatorade Player of the Year for the state of Oklahoma. So he was being recruited, you know, by everybody and in, in um, in the United States, uh, very t- highly touted. Um, and Oklahoma was like really on him hard, in particular, Barry Switzer. Uh, I remember Barry Switzer coming to my mom's job, you know, trying to woo her to get my, my brother to come <laughs> to Notre Dame. And, you know, it, for all intents and purposes, you know, you know, we were thinking he's going to wind up at, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State at, 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 at the least. So, you know, you get like back then you got like all the mail and he used to get bags and bags of mail that'd be dropped off. And it was kind of funny because my dad was a postal worker, uh, a postman. So, you know, he would get, uh, he would see it when he'd go to work, <laughs> he'd get all the, you know, see all the mail and, you know, the guys would rib him about, man, your, uh, your son, he's, he's the man. But, I remember Tony, like he would kind of go through the mail again, you know, Michigan, you know, Penn State, you got USC, UCLA, Miami, 
you know, you name it across the country, he's being recruited by, you know, LSU, Alabama, Texas. So, you know, he would always read the Oklahoma mail because he was, we grew up, you know, Oklahoma fans, you know, the wishbone and everything like that. But he picked up, a, a, you know, we didn't know where Notre Dame was. I mean, you know, really <laughs> had no concept of it. Well, but when you were dad, being recruited, Notre Dame was terrible. And Oklahoma yeah. had just won a national championship. Was it 80? 85. 85, yeah. And so, you know, we were going, and he was about to toss the Notre Dame letter to the side, and my dad saw it. And so he starts telling us about all the, the, the history of Notre Dame and, you know, the Gipper and, and Rockney. And we're like, who the hell are these people? <laughs> we had no clue. Did they tell you that the uh, current president of the United States at the time had played George Gipp in of a movie? Course. I mean, you know, he gave us the full, like, and we're still like, okay, I, we had no idea where Notre Dame was. And then we watched the game. Again, it was not a great, great outcome. But what struck us was the, you know, you know how they came in with the cameras and it, it shone on the dome. And it just looks like looked like this mystical place, and you know, tied it in with my what my dad was always hyping and said, you know, this is a great institution, they have great history. And my dad was a big proponent of the history of the game, so right. he made us you know study the history of the game and know the different you know aspects. And you know, when this is when Notre Dame, you know, even Leahy, you know, he talked about you know the going four years in a row and not losing a game, and you know, we're thinking. Okay, you know, this is, you know, they, there's some, some, you know, lore and legend from a history standpoint. He started naming off the Heisman Trophy winners. So it, it piqued our interest. But, you know, Oklahoma was still the, the, the top winner. So it was actually when, um, this is before, this was not legal, but, you know, no, uh, Coach Hoach had, um, <laughs> Some, some of the donors, uh, some of the alumni at Notre Dame, from Notre Dame that lived in Tulsa, to come and film some of uh, my brother's games. And then he would sh ship them back um, to South Bend so guys could look at them. And, you know, lo and behold, we find out that some of the more prominent donors at Notre Dame lived in Tulsa. And, you know, being from North Tulsa, it was a very, you know, Tulsa was fairly segregated. So you had the South Side and North Side. And Northside was, you know, not a lot of uh, opportunities there. Again, the high school we went to was pretty much a prominent one. So as we're, you know, learning more, we're starting to see, you know, a lot of the, you know, high-profile high individuals that we knew around Tulsa, they wind up being Notre Dame alumni, which was like, oh, wow. So, you know, and that was one of the things that, you know, kind of struck us just the – the, the value and how widespread Notre Dame's name was and the fact that it had such impact on my dad. And, you know, he was like singing the praises of Notre Dame because of its history. Even though the drive from Tulsa to uh, Oklahoma to Norman must have been, you know, it couldn't have been that long, I'm guessing, a few hours maybe or less. A couple hours there. Now it's like an hour and like 15 minutes because you can, the speed limit is, much higher. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your, your parents or your father pushed Notre Dame, even though they knew, Hey, we may not be able to see every game because it's so far away. 
Well, now that was the, that was the other thing. So when you know we that was kind of the thought because it was like a 13 hour drive, 13 14 hour drive from Tulsa to, to South Bend, and you know we you know didn't have a lot of money and uh, you know that's why we were going to go to school was through uh, a, a, a athletic scholarship. Um, we we did go to a prominent um, high school, Magnet High School, that was recognized nationally academically. So we had a, 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 that was the one thing that, again, that we, that helped us with Notre Dame is that, you know, Notre Dame being an educational institution um, and us having the background in education. And that was the one big thing for my mom is that as long as my babies get a good education, she care less where, where we went to school, just make sure you get that degree. <laughs> but did you get the sense before we move on, did you get the sense that your parents knew and or Coach Holtz made it clear that a degree from Notre Dame is just different. Exactly. And it didn't hurt when Barry Switzer went to my mom's job and basically said, what is it going to take for your son to get come to o- Oklahoma? And that really upset her because she was like, you're not, you can't buy my children. And that pretty mm-hmm. much nixed Oklahoma from being in any <laughs> – having any opportunity because again as much as my dad you know pushed Notre Dame it was my mom she she was she ruled the roost and you know (laughs) so her her word was law and you know he had her sold on Notre Dame and then when coach Holtz came into the living room that little fella is magical (laughs) I mean he he can he can he he I mean he did the the magic tricks was talking to her mom and uh, my mom and dad, and you know, I mean, he had them wrapped up pretty quickly. And even then, my brother was like, "Yeah, I'm still gonna go go somewhere where I can go party." And then what happened? My mom, she's like, "You're not going to Oklahoma." And you know, Lou Holtz, because he, he said, "Hey, you know, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna play high level football again." At the time, Notre Dame wasn't. Doing and he was really his first recruiting class, right? Yeah, was him, Tony, right? Tony, Ricky Waters, Todd Light, you know, Boo Williams. Like I said it was a number of guys, and that was the that was the pitch. You're going to come play at a high level, a high level of football, but you're going to get an education from a, a renowned, well renowned um, institution. And he pressed that. He kept pressing that issue, and that that that's what sold my mom. My dad was sold from the giddy up because of the, the <laughs> lore and the history of uh, Notre Dame. So, Cole Schultz, your brother Tony, is he two years older than you or one year older? Two. Two years older. So, he comes to recruit Tony successfully. Tony goes on to Notre Dame uh, to be a star player by every measure. So, were you in the room and involved in your older brother Tony Brooks's recruiting process? I mean, were you allowed to kind of, quote, hang around, for lack of a better term? And, and during that period, did Holt say, Reggie, I'm coming back for you, so don't you go anywhere? Or was it kind of like, hey, I'm going to go where my brother goes? No, for me, it was more of, again, I, I didn't really get a chance to, you know, be honest with you, I really didn't want to hang out because, again, that didn't really resonate with me. I was just trying to make the team as a high school player. And at the time mm-hmm. in the spring, I was focused on track. I was I ran track, so I was kind of doing my own thing. And be honest with you, I, didn't, I was kind of like thinking more, that's his, that's his deal. That's for him. Mm-hmm. And at the time, like I said, Notre Dame wasn't very good. So I'm like, eh, 
not not wasn't really feeling Notre Dame um, personally. But as you know, he went, and then we would go up, and like you said, it was it was a, it was a trek. Mm-hmm. But after my games in high school on Friday nights, we would leave Friday night after the game and drive up to South Bend overnight. My dad and a good family friend of ours, you know, they, we had this van. We'd climb in the van and make that trek, and we would get there uh, early in the morning, you know, go find the hotel and, you know, go to the game. And that was kind of our ritual. But me going back and actually going to the games and getting to meet some of the players, but also the atmosphere, you know, a fall in Notre Dame is like no other. That's beautiful. You know, it's, it was, you know, so I had the opportunity to kind of experience Notre Dame from a, a fan perspective and just be able to take in the atmosphere of a game and not having been been kind of pressed to get ready for a game. It, but it, you stayed on Holtz's radar. Is it? Forgive me. You you stayed on Holtz's radar, right? Like he he was yeah. aware of you, mm-hmm. and he thought. So by the time you started entertaining college choices the whole, well, Notre Dame's not that good right now. That was out the window. Exactly. They had just won a national championship my senior year, and that carried a lot of weight with me. But at the same time, you had several guys on the team that I'd gotten to know through my brother. And, you know, so I had a familiarity with the program and how they did things. Um, So it it was not – it wasn't a foregone conclusion because at the time, you know, Oklahoma State – had Barry Sanders, and he was on his way out. You know, he was leaving early his junior year, and I was feeling Oklahoma State because they ran the I formation it was very similar to the system I ran um, in high school, and we would go down there quite a bit. And I knew a lot of you know guys that I that came from my high mm-hmm. school played at Oklahoma State, so there was a you know Oklahoma was out because again, what happened with my mom and Barry Switzer. But Oklahoma State was still very much in the picture for me uh, my senior year just because of, you know, the proximity. And, you know, I, want, I was kind of a mama's boy. <laughs> so, you know, staying home close to home was not that, you know, it was something, again, I, I felt. Tony was going to leave no matter what. He was getting away from <laughs> He was well, getting away from <laughs> home. Is, is my memory – failing me, but would you have been at Oklahoma State the same time as Thurman Thomas? No. So Thurman Thomas was before Barry. So he's so before Thurman, Barry Switzer mm-hmm. or Barry before uh, Barry Sanders, excuse me. So yeah. He, he, and Thurman was, like I said, I remember my going, my eighth grade year going into ninth grade, went to the one of the Oklahoma uh, State camps and had the opportunity to meet uh, Thurman and was always cool because, like I said, when I finally made it to the league, you know, he was one of the guys we played Buffalo or I'd see him around. Mm-hmm. He, he always remembered me from the time when they said he was a senior and I was in going into the ninth grade. Uh, he was at the camp and one of the guys that would talk to, they were recruiting my brother at the time, mm-hmm. as a junior, but, you know, he did make some time for me and we, we, you know, always had a mutual respect for each other because he was one of those guys that I looked up to coming out of high, coming out of high school. If you had to describe Lou Holtz, I'll give you three words, just three. Which three would you use? Intense, um, demanding, and impatient. 
<laughs> impatient for improvement, impatient based on behavior, what did Ren? Period. I mean, this guy could go from from zero to a hundred in a matter of seconds. And what I mean by that is like you could be having a conversation and you're getting coached up. And if something goes just slightly out of what it, what he feels it should go, oh my gosh, he just explodes. He was not very patient when it came to you know, making mistakes. And this is in practice, let alone a game. I mean, so, but that intensity and that drive to say, hey, we're, he was always looking for that perfect practice. And he was very demanding. I mean, constantly. He was pressuring you, pushing you, demanding more of you in practice. So when we got to the games, that was a break. You know, when we got to a game, that was, we could actually relax at a game versus practice. I think players have said that I've, we had Ray Tolbert. If you've ever heard of Ray Tolbert, he was a captain of Indiana university's 1981 national championship team, Mr. Basketball and here in Indiana, first round draft pick. He said that he goes, man, games were easy compared to practices under coach Knight. Like we couldn't wait to actually get out there to play because, you know, then we could kind of do our own thing within the, within the, you know, framework of, of a team concept. He goes, but man, a practice, he's constantly stopping it. And, you know, Coach Knight's known to be a little oh, excitable. So Lou would like, so we had, we do 24 periods. So it was 24 periods of five minutes per period. So two hour practice. And so you would go and they said there was, you know, practice was scripted out from individual, I mean, even from warm up. So calisthenics to individual to one, uh, one-on-ones to uh, 707 to indoor and in, in, in certain pockets he would have like we always had two special teams periods uh, of, of 15 minutes per so 30 minutes of the practice was focused on special teams so you get to a point in practice where we would get to inside run mostly because he was you know he always said three things can happen when you throw the ball and two of them are bad <laughs> so he would really focus in on the run game and if that's not going well that's not going everybody's going to be miserable so he would either roll practice practice periods back. So you can get to practice for period 14 and he would take you all the way back uh, to period six. And you're starting from period six, like you go all the way to 14, go back to period six, six or eight, and then you have to go get to 24. So uh, many a day we were late getting out of practice um, because again, he was that demanding. And he would make things, you know, he would always run it again, run it again. And this one play I will never forget is, and I had to be crazy or something, but we were full pads and we ran a play and the right right guard messed up the play and we got tackled in the backfield. He just freaking lost it. He, <laughs> get, get, get him out of here. Get, he got, got told the right guard to get out. And so the offensive line coach is going to put in the backup. He's like, no, no, we're going to run it without him because it's like we weren't, he wasn't even there in the first place. <laughs> so we're in full pass in that grant you. And the defense knows what, knows what play we're running and we're missing the right guard. And I run the play. Oliver Gibson is the nose tackle. And he comes off and literally almost knocks me out. I'm literally looking out of my ear hole. <laughs> I mean, just blasting me. And it's like, and I think back now, it's like, 
why would I run that play knowing the outcome? And it just you would you would find yourself doing things that you wouldn't normally do because you know you wanted to make sure that you did did your very best. And again, it was for our, the guys you played with, your teammates. You know, how do you t- do better for them? And this is practice. But I know one thing: I never had to worry about that in the game. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you one more question about about kind of holds and recruiting. You know, you heard you heard or you you've read a lot of recruiting pitches, um, and one of the things that I read when I read recruiting stories about Notre Dame players is that is that the coaches and the folks uh, talking to prospective Irish say, "Look, this is a forty year decision. Like you don't, I know you don't understand now, but you will understand how this is going to impact your life." for the rest of your life. You won't just play and then leave. Did that come true? Are you a living embodiment of that recruiting promise? I would say so. Um, and, and Coach Host was very big on, and he'd tell you, you know, you know, a lot of you guys, but this is after you've signed your letter of intent, so I don't know how. <laughs> yeah. So he'd tell us, like I said, first, you know, when the freshman, would, uh, upper class, a freshman would come in a week before the upperclassmen, and he said, a lot of you guys are not going to like me. A lot of you guys are going to hate me. But you will thank me when you get that degree. And 18, 19 years old, you're like, yeah, whatever. You, I'm, I'm here to play football. Mm-hmm. But it has been such a blessing because I almost left Notre Dame. After my sophomore year, I was frustrated, wasn't getting opportunities. It was, you know, the cultural differences really, you know, impacted me um, coming from North Tulsa to, you know, South Bend, Indiana, which I knew nothing about. It, it was, it was very difficult and just the transition. Cause I didn't grow up Catholic and Notre Dame was very Catholic. Mm-hmm. And, but my dad was like, you made that commitment. You're going to stick with it. And I'm so glad that he forced me to grow up and you're going to, you're going to have, you're going to have challenges. You're going to have, you know, things happen. But the thing about Notre Dame that I always remember is, you know, people cared for you. You cared for those, cared for your teammates, but you were, you were required to go through some things that were difficult, but it lets you know you can overcome a lot if you have people that genuinely care for you and want the best for you. And I can go anywhere in the country, and in some cases the world, and if I'm wearing that interlocking ND, there's an instant connection that people will acknowledge, connect with, and communicate to you what, you know, you from Notre Dame? And I'm literally in Tanzania, and this is 2011, 2011, 2009, I believe. I'm in Tanzania, Africa, and would go out, was, you know, kind of going back and forth, went out with my Redskin gear on one day, you know, play with the Redskins. Nobody gave me a second look. A couple of days later, I had on a Notre Dame, Notre Dame hat and was out in the market. And these guys came up to me, Notre Dame, Notre Dame. Didn't <laughs> speak a lick of English, but they knew that that interlocking MD. And that that really hit home for me is like, wow, this is a worldwide brand like no other. Did did your brother and coach Holtz know that you were considering leaving the school or is it just something you confided with your family, your dad? Um, just, just my brother did. Um, and 
I hadn't, I was actually, I called my dad before I was going to go see Coach Holtz. And that pretty much nixed that meeting after talking to my dad. So I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to figure this out. And what, what would Coach Holtz have said to you, do you think, if you had gone to see him? Oh, probably the same thing. It's like, hey, you know, you know, I'm going to continue to challenge you. And he probably would have given me my walking papers. Because, again, if you were not mentally tough, you're not going to survive under Coach Holtz. Plain and simple. If you do not have the mental fortitude to deal with the pressure that you were going to be under, we were under pressure mentally and physically was a constant. And this was a question I was going to ask you later on in the podcast, but I'll ask you about it now. Do you think one of the reasons why Coach Holtz may have just said, okay, Mr. Brooks, you do what you got to do. I'll, I'll do what I need to do is because of the amazing talent that Notre Dame had in the backfield and on offense in those years. And I think one of the most remarkable aspects of your career is how you stood out and did so well in a backfield with people like Jerome Bettis. Well, and that was a thing about it. It's like, you know, you had such a respect and, you know, it was a joy to play with Jerome. And then like I said, our, it was, it was funny. Cause like I said, the, our backfield, and I think I don't know if this is still true to this day, but we were the all rookie backfield in the NFL in '93. So myself, mm-hmm. Jerome, and Rick Meyer were the two running, two rookie running backs, and the rookie quarterback that were the all on their all rookie team uh, coming out. And that that's not by coincidence. I mean, you know, we know about Jerome and his you know legendary um, capabilities and his ability, you know, just he's just not only a phenomenal football player, but a phenomenal person, Rick Meyer. And I always said, I I think again, of all the things I love, love coach Holtz, but I think again, had Rick had a more pass oriented offense and someone that knew the passing game a little, little little more focused on it, he would have been phenomenal, but did pretty good and is doing pretty good doing well for himself now. But that started because we were behind a Tony Rice, uh, uh, Rodney Culver, uh, Ricky Waters, my brother, Anthony Johnson. So if you were going to succeed, you had to step your game up. And like you said, we were so deep in the backfield. You know, that's one of the reasons, again, uh, Dorsey Levins was was in our class and he decided to go to Georgia Tech. Yeah, that's right. I think it worked out for him uh, well. And he's still, to this day, a very good friend. But just the the talent and the the competitiveness of that backfield was unparalleled. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and the Irish at the best Irish bar in the state. The Golden Ace are going to be loving this podcast for sure. And McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today on the Leaders and Legends podcast is a Notre Dame legend, All-American Reggie Brooks. You were a senior in high school when Notre Dame won the 1988 National Championship. 
what was it like to watch that season? Um, maybe you got to go to a game or two, but to watch that season unfold, given a Coach Holtz's visits to your older brother, Tony, and Notre Dame wasn't that good. And here they are, th- you know, two years later, Holtz's third season, and they are rolling. They beat number one Miami in what's probably the greatest game in Notre Dame history, or certainly very close. They beat Michigan. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about that. They beat Michigan on a bunch of Reggie Holt field goals. They beat number two USC at USC, and then they beat West Virginia in the Fiesta Bowl, and they were ranked number three. Holtz comes and visits. Notre Dame's not all that great. Just a couple of years later, they're the talk of the country. What was it like to watch that season, and what was it like to talk to your brother about that season? It was it was magical. I mean, and they said my brother was the one of the leading leading rushers on the team at the time. And again, I had the opportunity the year before. So, and, and to see how this team came together and got to see the players and, you know, and people talk about the offense, but that defense was, was pretty darn good too. You had uh, Wes Pritchard, um, Ned Bocar, um, Michael Stonebreaker, Boo Williams. Um, Pat you know, Terrell, Pat Chris Terrell, Zorich. Pat like Chris Zorich. I mean, you look at that defense, and that was the one of the things actually I, we would, you know, I had the opportunity to go up and watch a few practices um, in the spring and just the intensity of the practices. And this is spring ball. And you're talking <laughs> about thumping. I mean, they were going after and they would do one on uh, ones versus ones. Wow. And, you know, you look at that offensive line, you had Chuck Lonza, you know, you had um, um, Andy Hack, you know, then Tim Grunhart, mm-hmm. Dean Brown. I mean, they had some horses up front. And just watching those offensive, defensive lines go at it, I mean, that was something to see. You said you were at the famous 31-30 victory, I think it's at October 15th, I think, mm-hmm. 1988, uh, where Notre Dame beats Jimmy Johnson and the the – I don't know if powerhouse is quite the term, but <laughs> it's pretty darn close and maybe understates it. Defending national champion, Miami Hurricanes. It's the subject of a 30 for 30, which is available on your Amazon. Uh, if you want to watch it called Catholics versus convicts that centers on a t-shirt, a controversial t-shirt that uh, was uh, part of the lore that day and ever since, but the game itself is absolutely magnificent. And you were in the crowd. I actually got it. And again, I was there on an unofficial visit. You know, I got to come again. Like I said, we would, you know, leave my, we play Friday nights and hop in the van and drive all night to get up to South Bend to watch the game. And so I had the opportunity to be on the sideline when the fight broke out, which just was <laughs> the pregame it. fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the tunnel, I mean, that got you so hyped because that was the thing about Miami was very much about intimidation. You know, they would come in and, you know, just say, hey, we're going to take take control and show you that, you know, we're physically and try to psych you out. That was not going down that game. And it was funny because I remember, you know, Rocky Abismal, uh, great return man and great receiver, getting there fighting and scrapping it up, Tony Rice. And I'm like, 
wow, that's the quarterback in Notre Dame. And <laughs> <laughs> nobody was backing down. And that just set the tone for that game. I think everybody's trying to get behind Zorich. Like, Zorich, you just take on that whole team. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing about it. It was like T. Rice was like right out front, you know, Stance and Magala. It was like, and again, you could you knew what, what Miami was trying to do. They were trying to intimidate the, the Notre Dame team. Because, again, about a couple of years before, you know, Miami had throttled um, Notre Dame like 58 to 6 or some crazy number. And, you know, they were thinking that this is the same soft team. No, completely different mindset, completely different focus. And there was a, just this intensity. And to be honest with you, that really lit a fire under Notre Dame to say, okay, you think you're going to come in our house? There's no way. Had you decided, you said it was an unofficial visit. So you hadn't committed yet, if right. I'm if I'm getting this correct. So how much or if did that one game solidify your Notre Dame choice? It was it had a major impact. Because again, seeing for me, it was always about the team. And to see guys come together for a common bond, a common goal, just really resonates with me. You know, just seeing guys saying, hey, we're, we're not about, you know, one person or a couple of stars. This is about us being there for us and setting the tone. Because football, to me, is the consummate team sport. It requires 11 guys, whether you're offense or defense, to execute at a high level and to be on the same page to have success. And that requires 11 people working together constantly. Each play requires 11 guys to bond together, come together and, and execute a play. And, you know, for those six to seven, six to eight seconds, everybody in unison, it just, there's something about that that just resonates with my spirit that says, when you can do that, when you have people that are that willing to get outside of themselves and focus in on the bigger picture and, and step up and, you know, like an offensive lineman, you know, they're not there to be seen. They're the block. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not about them, you know, and the, for everybody to work. And like I said, we had some of the toughest receivers and some of the best receivers you'll see, but they were downfield blocking. You know, I remember, like I said, Jerome Bettis, you know, being out in front blocking for me. And so they said, you know, seeing some old film of me blocking for him. Rick Meyer jumping out there on, on reverses blocking doing the little things every single play so that we can be successful. Lake Dawson was a terrific blocker. Oh my gosh. He used, I, we called him Bam Bam. I mean, he was like, <laughs> he was like, he would take defensive safeties and defensive backs and like lock up on them and drive them in the ground. I, I've never seen anything like that in my life. A really good friend of mine. Um, and one of the best guys I know, quite frankly, his name's uh, Charles Roach. He's an attorney who graduated from Ron Colley in 85, then went to Notre Dame. And he was at that game, the 1988 game against Miami of Florida. He said it's the single greatest event in his life other than the birth of his kids. I think that's how he described it to me. Wow. He said the atmosphere of that game was just simply like nothing else. Um, Notre Dame has so many aspects of the game day experience. The walk, obviously uh, – the Hesburg Library, which is Touchdown Jesus, the Golden Dome, of course, the Grotto is my favorite place. It's absolutely beautiful. 
Uh, and then the bookstore, which will bankrupt you if you don't go in there with, <laughs> if you don't go in there with a plan, yeah. then you will leave with uh, a significant injury. But was that game, and you've been involved in some incredible games, which you're getting ready to get into about your career. Do you does that game still stand out to you, even though you were not a participant? Yes, yes. I mean that, and you know, seeing other recruits there. And just seeing the 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 hype and the bravado of Miami, and then you see this Notre Dame team that again everyone was like, okay, this is Miami. They're gonna come in and just roll right through them. And I mean, not one person took down. I, I remember, like I said, even little Reggie Ho was like, "Let's go," <laughs> you know. <laughs> He's not gonna bust the crate. But even he was jumping up and excited to see and ready to play. So you knew this game is going to be electric. And don't get me wrong, Miami did not, you know, wasn't backing down. But it did give them, I would say, a little pause that, okay, these these guys are for real. I think it had a respect factor for the Notre Dame team. And that documentary – the uh, Catholics versus convicts documentary. I think it was either Leon Searcy or um, Steve Walsh, the quarterback, either one or both made the point that one of the first things they noticed was how much better the Notre Dame defense was as to compared to previous years, particularly Zorich as a disruptor on the line. Mm-hmm. No, he, I mean, this man had just these humongous hands. And this is the one, one of the, said, the things that you know, Coach Holtz from a recruiting standpoint was huge on. He was very much about the importance of speed. So he would take, and that was it was similar uh, philosophy of Jimmy Johnson. You take um, a linebacker, make him a defensive lineman. You take a, a defensive back, make him a linebacker. But it was about speed. And that's, you saw a lot of the, the, the improvement over those first few years was in the speed of Notre Dame's defense as well as offense and their ability to match up. You know, Todd Light was a 4-4 guy. You know, you look at Stance Magala, Stance Magala, you know, 4-3, 4 to, to some degree. You know, so you had a lot, Pat Terrell, 4-4. You had a lot more speed in the positions that for, for a number of years you didn't have at Notre Dame. And that that really, you know, sunk in with me because that was one of my things. Like I said, I came out of high school as a you know track guy, but, you know, that could play football. Your seasons at Notre Dame, Reggie Brooks's seasons at Notre Dame, produced some of the best seasons Notre Dame's ever had. They went a total of 41-8-1. and one. They won three bowl games. Should have won all four if it wasn't for the Phantom Clip, which we will talk about. Yeah. <laughs> they, in 1989, his freshman year, uh, coming off a national championship, they lost only one game, and that was at Miami, but then whipped up on Colorado with the number one team in the country in the Orange Bowl. And they finished second in 1990. Notre Dame went nine and three and lost to number one Colorado, 10 to nine in the Orange Bowl, finished sixth. 1991, they went 10 and three, and it includes one of my all-time favorite Notre Dame games, and that's the whooping they put on Florida, who was ranked number three in the Sugar Bowl, that has the famous 
Lou Holtz story about uh, the waiter who had the balls, I guess we could say, to tell Lou Holtz what's the difference between Notre Dame and Cheerios. Cheerios belongs in a bowl. Oh, yeah. That was like, I mean, you got to understand. I'll let you finish, but. No, no, no. You go ahead right now because because it made such an impression on Holtz that he mentioned that story at the post-game interview on national television. He must have been fired the hell up. We all were. Because you got to understand, like I said, you're, you're there for about a week. And let me say, I will say this, in terms of bowl game um, pageantry and, 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 and activities, the Sugar Bowl was my favorite by far. Um, and I said, I went to two Orange Bowls, which were awesome as well, and Cotton Bowl. But, like, everywhere we went, so he wasn't the only one that heard that said. <laughs> and you got to say, these, you know, SEC fans can be pretty obnoxious. I'm just going to say. And so everywhere we went, that's all you heard. So when we would go out, you know, you go out and, you know, after practice and you go grab something to eat, anywhere we went, you know, you get the gator chomp, chomp, you know, we're going to destroy <laughs> you guys. You know, that, that saying, the difference between, you know, what's the difference between Notre Dame and Cheerios? I heard that no less than 50 times in the course of that week. Well, and we should add a little context. So Notre Dame was nine and three headed into uh, bowl season. And under the current configuration, they wouldn't have gotten anywhere close to a sugar bowl. No. Florida was ranked number three. It was one of the best teams in the country, had an amazing offense. And so the thought was, you know, Notre Dame was barely in the top 20, was in the top 20, but barely You're in the like top 18. 20. That's right. And Notre Dame didn't deserve to be at the Sugar Bowl with Florida. And it's only because they're Notre Dame and they always get treated differently. And everyone thought Florida was, you know, quite frankly, going to put the hurt on Notre Dame. And um, what happened was, and I want to ask Reggie about the second half. The first half was a little eh. And then the second half, I mean, Florida was a phenomenally talented team. Notre Dame ran it down Florida's throats in the second half and won by it was like 30, 36, 22 or 39, something won like easily. 34, something like that. It was, it was, it was, and that was the thing about it. It's like going into that, we were guys were pissed. And so because they had a I mean, just a ridiculous offense, like just they were throwing the ball, throwing for like four or five hundred yards a game, just crazy numbers. And so Coach Holtz employed a, a a drop eight and sometimes drop nine. So what that means is, like I said, you have you know, the drop eight, you have three guys rushing the passer and the other eight players dropping the coverage. And a couple of times we had nine guys dropping the coverage <laughs> and only two guys rushing because Shane Matthews was basically a statue. He had he, he was not going to run anywhere. So – the thought was to take away the passing lanes and we would mix up the defense. And again, they were the first half, you know, they were moving the, they would move the ball all the way down, but they were scoring field goals instead of touchdowns. Cause when they would get down into the red zone, we would be able to stall them. And, but the whole time we were, and we were always, this was our, we knew we could wear teams down. We're going to keep pounding you, pounding you, pounding you. Like I said, hit the, hit that sledgehammer, hit, hit the rock. Again, it doesn't look like you're making a dent, but you keep pounding away, keep pounding away, and soon you'll start seeing those cracks. And again, they just wore down. 
And then as a running back, you just have to be, that has to be what you live for. In the second half, Notre Dame just runs over Florida, including two iconic and significant runs by Jerome Bettis. And I don't think one of the commentators, it might've been Dan Deardorff because uh, it was covered by ABC said, I guarantee you Steve Spurrier did not think his team would lose to Notre Dame tonight. No. And they, I mean, they were, they were, they were kind of smug too, in terms of they kind of, it was an arrogance about them coming in a game. Like they didn't feel that we deserved to be there either. Right. You would have like during the, during the week, you would have like these uh, mixed team functions where, you know, you know, the pageantry, you go to the d- different dinners and activities where both teams would be required to be at some of the functions. And a lot of the, and we had a lot of guys on our team that were from Florida. So a lot of our Florida guys were hearing all the smack that's being talked because we, we fly, I mean, we practice up to a point then fly home, you know, for Christmas. And we would always usually have to leave out Christmas day heading to the bowl site. So a lot of our Florida guys, had been hearing, oh, well, you know, we're going to, you know, <laughs> just we're going to destroy you guys. You guys <laughs> don't have a chance. And so, it, I mean, so it was the, the trash talking was going even before we even got to the bowl game. So you add that plus fans just everywhere we go. If we wore anything Notre Dame, they were harassing our fans. I mean, just the disrespect was next world, next level of disrespect. And it's just like we were so keyed in to just we don't we didn't want to go out and hang out anymore. We just wanted to get to the game because we were that pissed off. Well, and the one thing I remember, and then we'll talk about your senior year and then some general conversation in the minutes we have left, but Holtz gets carried off the field. That's how big of an upset it was. And it's funny to think that because Notre Dame was riding high. So who would they be upsetting? But that, you know, that year didn't work out exactly how everyone had planned. I want to know, to the extent you can tell us, what was that locker room like after the Florida victory, victory over Florida in the Sugar Bowl? That has to be a locker room you remember. It was, it was like just a release, and everything. It was just a sweet release of you had been waiting for this for a whole week, you know, just getting to that point, and to do it in the fashion that we did it. Needed to say. That night, there was a lot of partying going on, a lot of partying going on. So we left, you know, we left uh, New Orleans with sweet victory. And again, we couldn't wait to get into the locker room after the game so we could say, okay, hey, where are we we going? Because we wanted to see those same fans that was talking all that mess all week long so they could hear. So who belongs in the bowl? I hope you let him have it. Oh, you you know we did. You know we did. <laughs> Reggie's senior year is one of the greatest years, individual years especially, uh, but a terrific team year as well. Reggie Brooks's senior season at Notre Dame, he rushed for 1,372 yards with an almost unreal 8.0 yards per carry average. He scored 13 touchdowns was named an All-American, and finished fifth in the Heisman Trophy voting that year. Do you look at 1992 and think about how great it was individually and in terms of a team, or do you look at that and go, freaking Stanford, how the hell did they beat us? 
You had the tie against Michigan, which, you know, I remember that's that's one of, something we're going to talk about with the touchdown. But Holt, I remember Holtz going off on the sideline reporter, John Dockery, because he had the temerity to ask him about a tie. But, okay, you tie Michigan at home. Okay, that happens. Michigan was a great team. But you lose to Stanford, and that's the real only blemish in a terrific Notre Dame year. And this is where, I, again, I'm trying to be better about this. But the Stanford game just – of that entire season, no, not like I said, not the the game, the run against Michigan, not the catch against Penn State. It's the loss to to Stanford that resonates the most with me, because again, I I wound up uh, you know getting a hip flexor, so I was we were up the first half, and I played through the first half and then got injured, and I just always felt like. Why couldn't I get back out there and help my team? I felt like I let our guys down and just just have to sit and watch things go, you know, just, you know, the fumbles, the interceptions, the bad things that happened in the second half and not being in a position to do anything about it was just crushing, you know, and that was, you know, you, you, you always talk about think positive, think positive. I that one that of all the things that happened in that season, that just just hovers and sits on me uh, to this day. You know, just I just felt like I just felt like I let the team down because I wasn't there for them because that was something that always, like I said, resonated with me. We were always there for each other. One of the things that's come through, and we've talked to several athletes, and we just recorded a podcast a few weeks ago in chronology with the airing of the podcast with three-time Indianapolis 500 winner Johnny Rutherford who's was a terrific terrific generous interview and he liked to talk about his victories you know and he enjoyed you know walking down memory lane and then I asked him the question that I ask all athletes of, of his stature and yours is you know if you close your eyes what comes to your mind first the games that you won or the games that you should have won or in his case, the race, and he immediately took off about the 19, I think it was 75 Indianapolis 500 that he thought he should have won and lost. That was the first thing he mentioned. And here I am talking about 92, and I kind of led you to it, but Stanford was a good team but not a great team and beat you, I don't know, it was like 33-16. I can't remember the exact score. We were up 16, I think 16 nothing in the first half, or 16-3, and to just – see the wheels fall off in the second half. I mean, it just, it was like, it was like surreal. you know, being on the sideline and, and, and just feeling helpless to see things just go awry in, in a matter of a half. Well, and Stanford was coached, I think if my memory serves, by Bill Walsh, who coached Stanford, then coached the 49ers, and then did Notre Dame games with Dick Enberg, and then came back to the stadium and, and won that game. But Let's let's not neither of us dwell on this because we want to have a good rest of the podcast because <laughs> we'll get all weepy. Uh, well, you remember a lot of the the except certain plays here and there. So if this didn't happen, because that was the game again, we I, you know if we could have connected on maybe one or two of the deep ball passes that were wide open that you know we just didn't connect on the what ifs. I mean, that is the what-if game of the century for me. <laughs> well, let's talk about some another maybe what-if or not what-if since we've got you on the podcast. 
I remember watching this, you know, it was, it was 30 years ago, but I remember it and just thinking, you've got to be kidding me. And that's the, the phantom clip call on the miracle Ragib Rocket Ismail punt return against number one Colorado in the Orange Bowl. It's your sophomore year. Uh, Colorado wins 10 to 9, but if the call doesn't come through, Notre Dame ends up winning that game. Uh, it's a, if you can look it up on YouTube, it's an absolutely beautiful punt return. They kick it to Rocket, which is the first thing you're just like, you can't yeah. be serious. He takes it all the way back. There's a 1% clip on the play that they couldn't have, shouldn't have called. What's it like being on the sidelines when you see something so unbelievably beautiful ruined by some insurance salesman who can't get out of his own way? Well, the thing that stood out to me about that game, in particular that play, was Rocket called it. He said, I'm taking this to the house. And, you know, again, this is, for one, we were like, how are you going to do that? Because there's no way these people are going to kick you the ball. I mean, they kick it right to him. Yeah, that was would be the most asinine thing to do, considering that is one of the only ways that we were going to have an opportunity to win that game is if they kick it to you. Because we were, I mean, we always expected to, to have a return, you know, our block punt. We, we were very diligent about special teams, and that was something that Coach Oates was adamant about. We were going to be the best coach special teams or team or, uh, organization there is. We're not we're – not, I mean, we might make some mistakes offense, defense, but we're going to be prepared to win the special teams battle. And that was always something, again, every practice, we would have two periods, two 15-minute periods of special teams where we just focused on that. And that's returns, coverage. So we were looking to block a punt, a return, you make a return. And when you got a guy like Rocket, again, you you block a little harder. You do a little bit more because you know if you give him an inkling of a chance, he's going to take it to the house. Another top returner was Ricky Waters. We had guys that we expected to make returns if we just did our job. If we did our part, we're going to get in the end zone. And in 1990, in the quote-unquote tiebreaker rivalry game against Miami uh, at Notre Dame, uh, Rocket takes – they kick it to him again. The Hurricanes kick it to him, and he takes it back. And that's almost, if not the margin of victory, pretty close. It was a a really good game, a close game. 29-9. I mean, 29-20. I'm sorry. That's right. Uh, speaking of the rocket and touchdowns, it was your freshman year. I was in the military. I was in the army. And one of the great things about Notre Dame in the late eighties is my roommate, uh, Kenny Terry, who I hope is listening to this terrific, terrific, terrific man was a Michigan fan. (laughs) And so the fact that Notre Dame owned Michigan in the late eighties, when I had to deal with this guy, uh, was very, very great. It was very grateful to Notre Dame. But were you on the sidelines in Ann Arbor your freshman year when number one Notre Dame beat number two Michigan and Rocket takes back two kickoff returns? Yes, and it was all. It was a, just a miserable. I don't know why Michigan was always a miserable place. It was either raining <laughs> or just just dreary looking. You know, it's like. Can it was a horrible rainy up? day. It was a terribly yeah. rainy day and but windy. But that was kind of like that was Michigan because we had that at Michigan State too. I don't know if that's just the state of Michigan is just like dreary and, and depressing. 
So I was there. And again, and like I said, the first one, you know, we returned it. We're thinking, and to be honest with the second one, even Coach Hose didn't think they were going to kick the ball to him. And it was like, the, like it was like the first Schimbeckler had been there 23, 22 years, 20 years. I mean, he'd started there in the 60s, right? But yeah. no kickoff return against the Michigan Wolverines in Schimbeckler's entire tenure as coach until Rocket Ismail took back two in the same game. And that, I mean, and I think part of that was some arrogance on Michigan Michigan's uh, part because you know he had, so Coach Holtz and uh, Bo they they they've known each other for years. They were on the same staff uh, for uh, Woody, Miami, Woody, Woody Hayes. Hayes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know they had a similar philosophy and, and perspective and how they approached the game. And so I think it was just one of those deals where you know. <laughs> The reason they kicked it to him a second time was just arrogance. It's like there's because again, you know, he was there. Michigan was always big on special teams as well. That was a big part of their game. So I just really think arrogance played into that to say, well, you know, yeah, you returned one, but there's no way you're going to be able to return two. So you, we're going to kick it to you again. It's like, but yeah, why would you do that? And those two kickoff returns were the margin of victory. Without those uh, touchdowns by the Rocket on kickoffs, uh, they Notre Dame would have lost that game. Uh, let's talk about your senior season. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about. Uh, one is the famous unconscious touchdown where you get hit so hard that it's actually kind of scary to watch. I watched it just again last night. Um, but you score a touchdown against Michigan unconscious, or is that overstating it, or is that an actual occurrence? That is literally my least favorite play. Because, one, I don't remember it until I saw it at, in um, meetings the next day. And, two, getting knocked out is not cool. <laughs> I mean, cool. they the, the, well, the trainers and the medical staff or whatever, they don't play around. They rush right onto the field. Like, they immediately know, like, this isn't a normal condition. No, actually, I would face – face planted, you know, into the end zone. And again, I don't remember any of that game, you know, after the game, we in the post game, post game uh, presser, I couldn't answer any of the questions. I'd been literally, I'd forgotten the parts of that whole game. It was just gone. So I did go back out and finish the game though. I was just getting ready to say today's, NFL or, or college, you wouldn't be anywhere near that field. No, I got the the smelling sauce and, you know, how many fingers and the numbness went away because literally the whole left side of my body was numb for a while. So once the numbness subsided and I could somewhat see, <laughs> there's no way I wasn't going back out there. <laughs> One of the things that your class did, uh, and I was going to ask you about the pressure of this is, Notre Dame went undefeated against USC for 11 straight years. Your class, all four years you were there, beat USC. How important was it for you to keep that streak alive? That was huge. I mean, so there were two two games that were paramount, at least in my time at Notre Dame. It was the Notre Dame-USC rivalry and the Notre Dame-Navy game. Um, and, you know, Notre Dame Navy was more about respect, 
in honoring the connection between the you know Navy and Notre Dame because again for years you know Navy enlisted their uh, officer program at and kept Notre Dame's doors open so we have we are you know indebted to that series and I know a lot of people are like why do you keep playing that game because they run that option and they you know can get injured then no one can say anything bad about Navy to me because again I, I I'm big on history that game and then USC are the two, you know, again, we can lose every game <laughs> with those two, you know, and I would be like, oh, eh. but losing the USC, mm-mm. I, to this day, and like I said, you can, if you ever talk to any of my kids, we have five, my, my wife, me and my wife met at Notre Dame. And to this day, I was like, you know, we have two more going to college and all of them know, you can go to any other school in the country any school. And I have no problem, you know, paying the tuition and, you know, paying for those others. But I will disown you if you go to USC. Not, it's just not acceptable. <laughs> so, a, a, terrific Notre Dame, a terrific Notre Dame game against USC is 1989, where USC comes uh, to Notre Dame Stadium as winning, and then Notre Dame comes back in the second half. You're 4-0 against USC. You were three and one in bowl games. Should have been four and zero oh if it wasn't for that awful call against the Rocket. A rival of Notre Dame's back then, which is, has gone by the wayside because Penn State decided to join the Big Ten. But the Notre Dame Penn State rivalry in the '80s was as intense as anything, and quite frankly, Penn State did very, very well against Notre yeah. Dame. Your last home game as a senior is famous as the Snow Bowl, November 14th, 1992. Notre Dame's ranked number eight. Penn State is ranked number 22, but as Penn State is winning almost the whole game in horribly cold conditions, blowing snow. It's probably all the things that you thought you didn't want to leave Tulsa for. <laughs> but it comes down to a touchdown catch by Jerome Bettis and a two-point conversion that lands in your feathery hands. Well, everyone thinks that everyone thinks Reggie <laughs> Brooks can't catch. No, one of the things I learned in doing research for this podcast, Reggie Brooks can catch. Reggie Brooks can't see. Yes, that is please very please true. tell please tell that story. So you know, I, I wore glasses to class uh, and I wore contacts, you know, when playing football, because again, you know, goggles, I just, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do the Eric Dickerson thing. <laughs> I just, I just couldn't do it. Did not like that look. So I wore contacts in the game, but in practice, I wouldn't wear my contacts because they irritated my eyes. So I was like, you know, again, again, this is kind of like the whole thought of, you know, running a play with no right guard. Well, do I really need contacts while I'm practicing? You kind of do, considering, you know, if you're going to be a part of the offense, <laughs> part of that offense, you're going to get the ball thrown to you. So you might want to be able to see. So I it just, you know, it never dawned on me that it would make sense to wear contacts in a game um, so I could see. Why? Don't ask me. I do, To this day, don't know why I didn't wear them. I just didn't. I didn't think anything of it. I never told anybody. 
I just didn't wear them in practice, but I would always wear them in the game. And, you know, I would miss balls in practice. And again, you know, we were, we were a running team. So I didn't really put a lot of stock in the passing game. because <laughs> I knew we were going to run the ball. So it's like, Hey, so I was never a primary receiver in any pass route. You know, I was out there very much <laughs> more decoy than anything else. And like I said the, my only other catch uh, was in a game was against uh, Navy and it was for a touchdown. It was a seam route. So when I wore my contacts could see great. And when I didn't, not so much. And so it was like, and I didn't think about it until Coach Holtz, you know, after the game, he gets up and says, you know, he has hands of stone. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And I, because again, I, again, you practice was a different deal and di- really didn't resonate that, you know, I didn't have my contact. So I didn't really think to think it, mention it. So I was actually not in that progression of the two point conversion. Literally, uh, and Aaron Taylor will tell you, Aaron Taylor, one of the you know, most dominant uh, offensive linemen that we had, he was said he's the reason I caught that ball because he missed his block. I don't know why you <laughs> that would that would be your claim to fame. It's like, hey, I was the reason that we got that two point conversion because I didn't block my man. Well, Notre Dame's losing the whole game. Uh, they uh, with uh, less than a minute left, they go down to Penn State's goal line. They throw a pass to Jerome Bettis, which is actually their two-point conversion play, but they used it to score the touchdown. They're down 16-15. Holtz, Coach Holtz, according to what I saw and read, basically draws up a play on the sideline. Rick Meyer, and I'm going to post the clip of this play on, on Facebook, but Rick Meyer throws a beautiful pass. Reggie Brooks lays out for it, catches it, Notre Dame wins 17-16. One of the things that's interesting when watching that clip, especially when you watch the entire game, because NBC has their vault open and has had all these great Notre Dame games on YouTube that you can see. You walk off the field with that football. Do you still have it? Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. And it's at home because I'm in my office. I was looking up to see it because I have my helmet here. You know the trophy, but it is at the house, uh, and it's uh, it got it inscribed Notre Dame, Penn State. You know, seventeen, sixteen, uh, and it doesn't say the snowball, but it because my you'd get like a ball game ball. So I was I was that was the game ball for me, and um, the the other important point of that game was that was the first uh, senior class to leave. Uh, to, to win the, their last home game in Notre Dame Stadium. And th- that was a bigger part of that that game than anything else is that the previous two uh, senior classes had lost the last home game uh, prior to their, you know, their last game at Notre Dame, in Notre Dame Stadium. And that was one of the questions I had written down. Are you Do you go into your last game at Notre Dame Stadium? I mean, you'd been there as a recruit. You had played by the time of your – senior year you'd played probably 25 games there at least close to that number you're just thinking there's no way we're going to lose my last game at the house that Rockney built that was that was that was the majority of the talk 
I mean, within you know the course of the week, um, it was extremely important. I mean, um, you know, Rick, myself, Irv Smith, um, you know, uh, our secondary was all freshmen, but Brian Radigan, Demetrius Debose, um, that was a huge junior Bryant. You know, just thinking about the guys except our senior class, that was a huge, huge part of that game and just the tenacity. And, you know, you know, we talked about the, you know, we could have tied the game mm-hmm. and, you know, ended with a tie, but there was no way. And, and Coach knew it too. You know, that's why he was like, hey, we're going for two. That was going to happen regardless just because we did not – and, and Coach knew we, were, we could not. We could not go, go out without, you know, that last home game without a win. We just that was something that we just stuck with us because we were a part of those teams of the previous two years, and to see and not be able to send that senior class out on a high note, that just we just couldn't allow that to happen. You go on to crush number three Texas A and M in the Cotton Bowl. You finished fourth. But in looking in the few minutes we have left, two of the most famous plays in the history of Notre Dame football happened in the exact same corner of the exact same end zone. What did Pat Terrell ever say to you about, hey, you trying to take my spot? No, I said it was, it was you know, you you see it. And again, you know, when you're in the mix, in the middle of it, going through it, you don't really think about it. But to, to be able to step back and, and reflect on just the magnitude of, of the plays and be a part of that, you know, be a part of that Notre Dame history and that lore. Because you're talking about George Gipp, you know, Johnny Lujak, Latner, Tim Brown, you know, they're, Paul Horning, Paul Joe Horning. Montana, the list goes on. Yeah. And you like, but that, that was the thing. That was the magnitude of, what that playing on that surface meant. And even to this day, going coming out of the tunnel and countless guys, you know, even guys, like I said, you know, Joe, you know, Joe Theismann, even now coming out of Justice Allen Page, coming out of oh, that tunnel yeah. still resonates with guys. Yeah, you may not have been, it may have been years since you played, but to come out of that tunnel, whether you're walking out of it or running out as a, as a player, it's something special. Speaking of someone we'd love to have on the podcast, Alan Page, what an absolute phenomenal human being, besides football player, one of the yeah. greatest defensive players in the history of the NFL, one of the greatest players in the history of Notre Dame. But what he's done post-football is just absolutely phenomenal. His The Page Foundation is a, a, a true blessing, and he does such a phenomenal job with young people. And then and it just – highlights the importance of education, you know, and how the value of it is something that, again, you can't take that away. And, you know, I've had the just sheer joy and honor of communicating with him uh, fairly regularly, just, just to talk, just, I'm, you know, I always kind of be like, wow. Cause I can call up, you know, a Leon. I mean, I can call up a, a, a giant John, uh, you know, Latner. I can call up John Hewitt. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, I was, you know, texting with uh, Joe Montana. And, you know, when you're doing it, you're like, you know, because, again, with my role, it's about outreach and make sure guys are connected. But 
that's what's special about Notre Dame. It's the people. And these are the same individuals that are just icons. But to have the ability to speak to them on a personal level and just get to know them as human beings, you get to see a different side of them that, you know, humanizes them, but also lets you know, this is what I'm a part of. And it must have been important at us. I mean, as uh, maybe not when you first go to Notre Dame, but as you as your career progresses at Notre Dame to be conscious of that legacy. And I, I, I'm going to say it this because how this is how they would say it in the army. Right. Like, don't be a knucklehead. Like you do understand that if you're here, you're representing Tim Brown, you're representing, you know, Bob Golick, you're Joe Montana, Dave Casper, Alan Page, Bob Kuchenberg. I mean, too many Joe Theismann, too many people to name. Does that not weigh on you, but is it something that you factor in? You're like, look, look at the people who came before us, what they mean to the community at large. And I can add to that legacy. And I want to. That, that's exactly the, the point is like, you know, you don't want to let those guys down because they set a standard They that. And it's not so much that you have to live up to it. Just don't bring it down. Don't be the one to cause shame or, or, you know, bringing that legacy down. And it's not so much a pressure as it is an honor, you know, and, and, it, and it's not just the former players. I'm, I mean, I look at father Hesper. Exactly. The, the, you know, what he has done, what he did for so many that was a part of the fabric of Notre Dame as a community and being a part of that community goes beyond being a plan of a game. Cause in the end, that's what, that's what you're doing. You're playing a game, but life, you know, life happens and to see, you know, you see these individuals go out and do great things beyond their playing career. I, I, I marvel at, the, the work that Jerome does with, you know, the, the Bus Stops Here Foundation, Justin Tuck and what he does with um, his literacy, pro, Rush Literacy, and, you know, um, uh, Golden Tate and the focus on, you know, veteran, you know, helping veterans. Same thing with Brady Quinn. It's, that, that's, an, there's, that's where the rubber meets the road, not the success that you had as an athlete, but who are you as a person? What are your values? And that's what you were taught at Notre Dame to take, to step it up, not only on the field, but in the, in your life, your personal life, spiritual life, and, but also giving back to others, because that's, that's what you were made to do. Your career, last question before we end with the final five questions we ask of anyone, your career is bookended by two of the most famous seasons in Notre Dame history, the 1988 national championship team and the 1993 team that is one field goal against Boston college away from winning the national championship. Again, we would think, but that's the famous year where they beat Florida state, which ironically, when it came to the final rankings, the only game that didn't matter to the pollsters was the game that Notre Dame beat number one, Florida state Mm, you know did you, did you ever go like damn I, how come i missed out i mean is that just kind of the accident of birth but you would think man that's if i'd gotten there a year earlier or i'd gotten there a year later maybe that would made a difference well and that's why i think the 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 um the stanford game resonates so 
prominently with me is that, you know, I still feel we should have won at least one more national championship during that, during that period when I was there, because, you know, you see all these opportunities and a lot of these same guys, you know, the Brian Youngs, um, the Pete Versiches, the Jim Flanagan's, you know, the Brian Hamilton's, I mean, that, that came in on the back end, the Tom Carter's, the Jeff Versus, you know, you had all these, the, you know, Derek Mays. Aaron Taylor. Really, mm-hmm. had these really talented guys on the back end. It's like that you played with that, man, our senior year, we were, we, I mean, of the 22 starters, you know, 18 went to, 17 or 18 went to the NFL. You know, our offensive line, you had Tim Ruddy, you had Justin Hall, Aaron Taylor, Jordy Halter, Lindsey Knapp, Irv Smith, Oscar McBride, Lake Dawson, Rick Meyer, you know, myself, you know, Ray Zellers on defense. You had Brian Young, Brian Hamilton, um, Demetrius DeBose, Carmel McGill, um, you know, uh, uh, Devon McDonald, Tom Bur- T- Jeff Burris, John Covington, you know, Tom Carter. All these guys went to the league, you know, and a <laughs> tie and a loss. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Should not have happened. And I completely get it. I mean, I've never played anything at a professional level or even close uh, from an athletic standpoint. But you know what? I can remember racquetball games I lost in 2001, 15, 14, like they were yesterday. And someone's like, dude, it's 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 club racquetball. And I'm like, whatever. Do you keep score or not? Yeah. Exactly. I could not imagine, you know, having the sorts of defeats that that athletes at your level, professional and amateur, have to deal with. Obviously, you know, like I said, these folks that we've talked to so far, that's the ones they bring up. That's what they remember. We end the podcast, the Le- Leaders and Legends podcast, and we're with Reggie Brooks with the same five questions for everyone. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your What was your first job? Uh it didn't last very long, but I was in high school. Um, I worked in uh, a, a movie theater. Um, so I was one of the, again, you, you know, I took tickets and cleaned out the movie theater after the people left. Um, reason I didn't, I stayed for about two weeks, but they were on their feet too long. I, I was like, I didn't got to sit down. This is just, you know, this is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first concert? Actually, first concert was by accident. This is uh, at went, I was in college and went to a um, a, a Prince concert and was hey, in, in that's good. And to be honest with you, I was not a huge Prince fan, but <laughs> wow, I mean, a phenomenal <laughs> concert. Was going, you know, just just to hang out with some friends. I said, well. You know, I'll go. I mean, don't have anything else to do. It was doing the spring break. And I mean, just a phenomenal concert. And this is when, like I said, the lead act would perform for more than uh, 30 minutes. <laughs> That's a terrific first concert. If you could recommend question number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Well, I'm I'm more into the um uh fan, not fantasy but nonfiction. Um, but there's this one book I read, and this is a while back, Boys in the Boat. It's a, a book about um uh rowing and you know the importance of 
everybody in the boat. If you're, if you, the only thing where it was an eight man boat, eight man boat, and they're rowing and, you know, going, and this is, they're rowing in the Olympics at, um, in, against, in Germany. Mm -hmm. But there, it talks about their life through and how, again, the importance of everybody in the boat. And again, if you're rowing, you have to be in lockstep with everybody. And you, if, cause if you get any sort of drag or anything is in the least bit off, it will just slow you down. And just the precision that it takes and everybody being on the same page from the coxman to each and the difference between the guy in the front and the guy in the back of the boat, it goes through all of that, but it also goes through their, their lives as they in, um, go on in, their, in the army and, and the service and their families. Mm -hmm. But they always come back to this boat, being one of the, the, one of the eight in this boat and winning, winning the championship and the sacrifice and the commitment that it took to get there and how it impacted their lives years later. And that book has just, it just resonated with me to know in our, our, row, our uh, row, rowing coach, Martin Stone um, hit me to the book and this guy's, you know, rowers are a different breed. So, you know, I was kind of skeptical about it, but after reading it, I mean, I just, just ate it up. And what's Boys the name the of the boat? Boas in the boat. Boys, Boys in, the, in boat. the boat. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, I'd have to say the um the crucifixion. I know I this sounds kind of morbid, but just to witness the gift of life given and have a better under perspective understanding of my faith of this is why you do what you do and the faith that you have in human in mankind is because Christ gave his life for me and to be, be there to witness that to get the full impact of it I think would just be phenomenal terrific Last question of the five questions. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Ooh, um, actually, uh, I would say Michelle Obama. You know, I know she, she, just her strength, her quiet confidence, and just her intelligence, and just you know, just to hear, just hearing her speak and her humility as an individual, her focus as being a mom and the importance of not wanting to be the, in the limelight. I always, you know, you have people that like to be in the limelight. That was never me, but to talk to somebody at such a high level, but that maintain their humanity and compassion and dignity, it, it, it always, something that's always resonated with me and someone when I'd love to just talk to over dinner. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station. 
the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been All-American and Notre Dame great, and I guess I should say, because we didn't get to ask you about this on the podcast, two-time winner of the Madden Bowl, (laughs) Mr. Reggie Brooks. Reggie, it's been an honor. I loved every second of it. I wish we could talk for, for a much longer time. I have so many more questions, but I know we both have other things to do. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you for being everything that Notre Dame is all about. Thank you so much for having me. And again, we don't have to be on the podcast, uh, you know, keep in touch and, you know, continue the conversation. Would love to. Thank you, sir. Take care. Take care. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.